Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Freud Museum, the final home of Sigmund and Anna Freud. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this evening's event and all of our guest speakers, who we'll meet in turn in a moment. They are all here to celebrate the publication of Professor Juliet Mitchell's latest groundbreaking book titled Fratriarchy. If you haven't got your copy, please do go down and get it after the event because you've missed a chance now. And I think um, there may be an opportunity to have the book signed at the end of the week. <laughs> so I just throw that in there, sorry about that. And hot off the press, of course, from uh, Routledge, Fratriarchy breaks new ground by arguing that as well as the individualism of the family, we are born into a social world of others, working with siblings in the social world along horizontal axis for more than 20 years. Juliet Mitchell describes feminism, <coughs> political sisterhood, and the actual and symbolic sister as missing in fratriarchy, although not in literature. Professor Mitchell's pivotal text argues how the mother's prohibition of her toddler attacking a new or expected sibling is a foundational force structuring our later lateral relationships and social practices. Making use both critically and affirmatively of Freud, Klein, Winnicott, Bayen, Pontalis and others, patriarchy indicates how the collective social world is a match for the individual family world examined by established psychoanalysis. This evening event also marks 50 years since the publication of Professor Mitchell's Psychoanalysis and Feminism. Almost 50 years, I think. No, I don't know about that. Give it a year, maybe, rather. Because it was 20, it was actually 1974, wasn't it? No, but it was. Oh. No, it was 1973. Oh, all right, well. What if we hear about that? Described by eminent art historian Brian E. Fair as Juliet Mitchell's famously unorthodox book on Freud, this landmark publication in the field argued that feminism needed psychoanalysis in order to understand the oppression of women. Fratriarchy both builds on and reverses psychoanalysis and feminism. Writing as a psychoanalytic practitioner, Juliet Mitchell shows what happens from the ground up when we use feminist questions to probe the psychosocial world and lateral relations. Fifty years on from psychoanalysis and feminism, Fratriarchy now asks, Fratriarchy now asks psychoanalysis to take on board the developing practices and theories of global feminism. Now, joining us on stage this evening, I'm pleased to introduce a number of other esteemed guests in addition to the author itself. Holly Porter, an anthropologist, associate professor, and associate director of the Cambridge Centre for Gender Studies, which was founded by Juliet Mitchell at the University of Cambridge. Rosemary Davis, a fellow and training analyst of the Institute of Psychoanalysis. And Manuel Batch, who completed a PhD from Juliet's programme at UCL and who is now completing his analytic training at the Institute of Psychoanalysis. Welcome to you all. And of course, Professor Juliet Mitchell, the esteemed psychoanalyst and feminist and author of the aforementioned Fratriarchy, here it is again, Psychoanalysis and Feminism, and a host of other major contributions to her chosen fields, including 
Women, the Longest Revolution, first published by Pantheon Books in 1984, Mad Men and Medusas, Reclaiming Hysteria, published by Basic Books in 2000, and Siblings, Sex and Violence, published by Polity Press in 2003. So you have a 20th anniversary as well. As well as being the editor or co-editor of many, many books which have become stable texts in a variety of disciplines. Uh, Juliet Mitchell is also fellow uh, professor of psychoanalysis at Jesus College, Cambridge, where she founded the Centre for Gender Studies at Cambridge University. In 2010, she was appointed director of the expanded doctoral school in psychoanalytic studies at the Psychoanalysis Unit of University College London. We are immensely grateful and honoured to have Professor Mitchell here with us this evening, as well as her distinguished colleagues, who each in turn will um, praise this book and open our minds and our ears to its contents. Uh, and then there will be the opportunity to buy it afterwards, if you haven't done so already. Um, and on that note, before I hand over to what I'm sure will be an absolutely stimulating set of presentations and uh, discussion, I would like to thank you all for being here tonight to support the Freud Museum, just by being here, buying tickets to come here, helping us buy, buy something in our gift shop. You really are making a difference because the Freud Museum receives no regular public funding whatsoever. Um, and if you haven't signed up to become a member and could be tempted, uh, please go down to our gift shop afterwards and speak to Ricardo, who's supposed to be here, and he'll sign you up. And in future, you'll get 20% uh, discount on all our fabulous in-house and online events. So, without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Professor Juliet Mitchell, who will speak first of our four speakers this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you all for so impressively making it at this completely unforeseen rail strike, which I was sure if we chose a midweek, midday, yeah. weekday, wouldn't happen. This has. So thank you for coming. Um, I actually did wonder about this question of is a psychoanalysis in feminism 50 years? This year as well this year. I looked into it and I was totally shocked and surprised. The whole history of psychoanalysis and feminism changed in an instant as I realised what the history was. And the history was that it's published first in America by Andre Schiffrin in 1973. Uh, it was then published in England by Penguin and um, Anne Vane in 74. The whole American history has completely vanished. Yeah. Absolutely vanished. So much so that in Googling, uh, uh, to look up Andre Schiffer and things, there were odd nice messages about him being an exceptional publisher, etc. So there was endless messages saying things like, there's no relationship whatsoever between uh, Andre Schiffer and a woman's estate. He actually gave me for a woman's estate, essentially, and he was saying about that in some point. But it's entirely conceived and published in America first and entirely by somebody and a collection of people, a sort of whole, whole left-wing youth central unit of Andre's flat uh, apartment in uh, New York where I lived at the time. Um, I was writing it and thing. Not where I was writing it, sorry. They were not conceiving it. Um, it's just missing, completely missing. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't exist. And really, in almost with Kenneth when he stood into this history of Andre Schiffer, which was a remarkable one. Um, 
So that's uh, well pleased to, to say, no, it was conceived through an ownership of inner Mahindra. I and had the ideas with Nathan's Fellows of there. I then came back to England and uh, went into what I thought would be a few days as we need to do in the um, British, uh, British Museum, like as it then was, uh, to read about Freud on women. And I read 22 volumes non stop. Mm-hmm. And it became a such as with an English book in the way, because of where I was reading from. Uh, there was very, very little um, orthodox psychoanalysis uh, known in Martin Riemann at the time. And I'm then, and, and uh, yes, and then with that, I've been only for existential psycho- psychology things, and um, quite an interesting frame, general framework. Can you hear at the end? I feel like it is. A- anybody who can't hear, just please call out because it's very annoying to. Most people also to speak to help people. Uh, just quite annoying too. So, anyway, so then there was that. There's, there were these completely transformed books for me, and they made me look at. I think it made me look at my whole history in relation to um, both feminism and in relation to psychoanalysis differently. I remember things differently, um, and I would just here say that I'm often put down as a feminist psychoanalyst. And that's exactly what I'm not. We are a and I'm a psychoanalyst, but they're not joined together uh, in that sort of collateral way, because feminism is a politics as far as I'm concerned, and psychoanalysis is not a politics. It's something that we can use for politics if, if we're in the same class, if we want to. But there isn't such a thing as feminist psychoanalysis. So I'm both. And, and they're both in me, as they put on the same person. <laughs> and that's why, when what you were describing in Fratriarchy, it is both a sequel to psychoanalysis and feminism and, and a reversal of it, because psychoanalysis and feminism is about saying feminism <coughs> must listen to what psychoanalysis is saying. And there was a new spirit of being in America was, of course, that um, feminism was very, very much sort of being constructed and created at exactly that moment in the mid-60s, and until the date now, because like, everybody gives the date at which feminism started or something, basically everybody gives the date at which they started in feminism. But I'm, I'm going to give it, uh, in, yes, I was there, but I wasn't there as a feminist, and I was at the Social Scholars Conference for New Left Review in 1966, and got to know instantly the feminism that was electric in New York in 1966. And the days I'm going to give is the foundation now, the national organisation of women in 1966, mm-hmm. um, as a useful shape that we could all share if we wanted to, and it's quite mm-hmm. Uh, dead and our own ones. That's extra thoughts for the story. Uh, so there I was looking at what all these marvellous women feminists were talking about. And they were great. And Kate, Kate Bedett, Gilbert Harston, uh, Gloria Stein, and we, we were all meeting and talking with each other. 19th per dozen, Gloria would tap dance for us as if we wanted a break. I lived an amazing experience at that time, but the only part of the experience was this 
complete condemnation of psychoanalysis. And I had no idea why people condemned psychoanalysis and the human mind gender at all. And this I hadn't thought it has until I went back and went to my own work. And then I realised to be more on my agenda than I realised. Um, anyway, there I was in 66, which is exactly when We Live Along This Revolution was published in New Left Review. And it's published in New Left Review with considerable isolations, as a nice way of putting it. Uh, it was treated, no set circles and very good friends of it, Dan, but was some very good enemies of it too. And I was the only women on the board, 12, 12 good men and true. Um, and it just felt like a very lonely product. It sent, it didn't, <laughs> it came out in 66, and there I was in America, and it was immediately taken out in America, so it became a very sociable book for me, suddenly. Uh, it changed, and in those days, to sort of get pirated effectively um, by countries like China, it was just not on the path, so I was delighted that it was pirated everywhere. And it was, and they came out in sort of Finnish and Chinese at the same time. And people just took it, which was great. So it suddenly had a completely different social, social existence in the cities. And at this point, I was wondering why the enemy was psychoanalysis, because that clearly was the enemy. Was it just the bullet people that I thought about in the book, Psychoanalysis and Feminism, mm-hmm. as I'm written about against psychoanalysis, as would been there and written about it, and I've written so. So if you write shows, but if you're Ouch, at the end. Uh, he liked to settle before. Um, he was just in the, in the antagonism psychoanalysis was part of the feminist culture at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, the whole idea of, of sexuality being about the vaginal sexuality versus cultural sexuality. It's a huge theme of early uh, feminism in the States. And of course, Freud was on the wrong side um, and has been used and criticised for that. So that, that was the sort of American background to reduce psychoanalysis and feminism. Um, the English background was largely ignorance. Um, but as I say, I just filled in by nearly 23 volumes and then also being ignorant. In fact, I look back at myself then and can't believe how, how much I knew for it. I really, I really knew from inside out. You know. And I find myself still referring to things that people say, well, where does he say that? And I say, I can't be Kratish now, and never can tell me, because there's still somewhere there. And he's always remained, he's always remained important. So then, whenever I, I mean, I train, right, and later, oh, I was good at that, and put the division there. So psychoanalysis and feminism was written as essentially an academic book. Um, I was a university lecturer in English literature at initially at UC University, and then I read it in university. And that's, that's what I did, and I was writing a PhD on, on literary themes. Um, that's my life was in feminism, basically, and Freud by then. And I found I wanted to know where these, the more I knew about Freud, which as I say was a lot of, of reading in, the, in English in translation, I didn't read it. Well, when I taught it later, I did read it in German as well. And it was written, those that basically then I was mean that. And I wanted to know where the ideas came from because basically one was getting hostility to them. So well, they were fairly established. Where did they come from? And I decided I wanted to train uh, to find out where they came from. So I applied to train as a psychoanalyst. 
and I probably stopped there. It was unbelievably difficult to get permission just to to, tra to train, and I can talk about that. But I did train, and to mine and everybody else's surprise, I went on being a clinical analyst for 25 years as my name, Joel, with lecturing in, mostly in the States. Because you could go for a few days and pretend you had this to an analytic session to work for Maritoba and help with Dave, um, which I did. did um, but I trained and I stayed a psych being the most important thing. And flattery actually, while I said it's a reversal of psychoanalysis and it's a reversal of the academic psychoanalysis and feminism. It's a totally clinical, what it's written from than in a clinical standpoint. But a clinical standpoint about an area that isn't there thematically, which is the social area. I think both about psychoanalysis is an individual area, and it's the key to complex. And what I'm talking about is something earlier than that, uh, which is, first of all, we're all born into a social world as much as into a little world. And by social world, I don't mean any the way the complex things we go down talking about, like social dreaming in English, so the doctor may. I just mean that, that maybe a doctor or a nurse or your grandmother or your cousin or somebody around when you're born and in your, the pen, your parents' heads as a sexual world. I just mean a really ordinary sexual world and what happens if we look at ordinary sexual world. So it's a book that looks at the ordinary sexual world you know, from the perspective of a clinical psychoanalyst who's trained to deal with individuals and useful things, but not with the idea social world, and which Dick Dwight talks about, is the relationship called the older child, of the two-year-old, basically, to the younger child. The younger child takes in with these, the essence of the being of who the older child, the two-year-old, is, which is a very fragile identity still, is the baby of the family. And so, later he hears that there's more baby, that he or she thinks, or it thinks there's more of me, and hugs the mother's annoyance too much, and that sort of incestuous development, and that overdubbing of this new baby, or it wants to get rid of this thingy. Basically, yeah. It's not then, as for Christmas, it's there for. If never, if you want the baby to kill it, wants to murder the baby. Murder and incest are the two things that psychoanalysis labels as universals. All societies forget incest, by which we mean a relationship with somebody too close to us. And all societies name it certain types of killing as murder. And I would talk endlessly about that because, again, it's very misunderstood. But it goes to the heart of psychoanalysis. Therefore, this earlier constellation in which usually uh, a boy settling mother prevents the old child murdering or having an incestuous relationship to the thing with sibling that's taking his place. And that's where the thought is. You know, you know, it's a hobby to talk about words. Thank you, Thanks, Julia. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here in, in conversation with the in the and the and also to share the room with so many people who I imagine includes probably some of her former students, some of her colleagues, um, other people who have um, been in conversation both in person and perhaps in print with um, with her work and intrigued by her ideas. And as we all know, 
and perhaps why we've come, she is a field-defining thinker, and you can hardly talk about psychoanalysis and feminism and the implications of gender uh, without reference to, to Juliet and her work. It's had a huge influence both in the field of psychoanalysis and beyond, and I, I'm approaching this not as a psychoanalyst. Um, it really isn't my field. I, I'm an anthropologist that, that um, you know, is kind of coming at this bit from the outside, but thinking seriously about her ideas. And so, so perhaps it's not a surprise that part of my reflections kind of come from a wrestling with the particular and the universal and the scale that kind of in the book and in her thinking that kind of goes back and forth, the implications of that. And so Juliet moves from both kind of interfamilial dynamics to all of human society. And her work is concerned with the social unconscious. So she writes, studies of the family and of the society are legion, but what we need to elicit is the same child who is always differently in both. So as we investigate the social, the family has to also be in the back of our minds. And, and then kind of very succinctly, she puts it, I think that kind of helps me grasp it as well, is that the individual and the social are one and the same person. And so when I, when I read your work, Juliet, I find myself kind of sliding back and forth also in, in these scales. So I read it as a member of a family. And so on that one hand, I read it particularly as a mother, a mother of um, two daughters who wants them to emerge as fantastic humans on the other side of the sibling trauma and hopefully not murder one another in the process. Um, and, and I also read it, on the other hand, as a scholar of gender and war and violence, because that's, that's, that's what, I, what I work on. And so I appreciate the work that you've done and the insights that you offer to both and the connections that uh, you make between them. In psychoanalysis of feminism, as we've been talking about, we have this radical assessment of Freudian psychoanalysis, which came at the time when psychoanalysis and feminism were considered to be utterly incompatible. And your work contended both with the kind of earlier male psychoanalytic um, thinkers, as well as many who were in the feminist movement who were tap dancing in front of you and had won that. And it's persuasive, and so it was persuasive to many that psychoanalysis offered a theory of patriarchy and gender that has um, the potential to contribute to the liberation of women. And, and it also helped show feminists how we might use psychoanalysis to understand how this oppressive uh, patriarchal division of the sexes is embedded in our uh, unconscious processes. And then since then, a large part of, of Juliet's attention and work has done many things, but particularly revealed and explored the importance of, of siblings. And speaking to the neglect of siblings and that horizontal or lateral paradigm, as she calls it, in contrast to this more dominant focus <coughs> Um, not just in psychoanalysis, but more broadly in the kind of social and psychological sciences on the vertical axis between um, intergenerational parent and child relationships. And so this, this book extends those concerns um, in important ways and as he defends it as this sort of um, a sequel, but also as a reversal of, of method. And, um, and that reversal of method also kind of plays with this sort of, with the kind of scale between the particular and the universal, and how you use those different perspectives as a university lecturer, um, as an academic, as a practitioner, and as a, as a psychoanalyst. Um, 
And um, so I, there's another kind of passage from the book that I want to read because I think it kind of really gets at the heart of um, um, uh, 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 of the book, really, and kind of of the idea. It's two-year-old girls, as well as boys, have tantrums. Both are reacting to the arrival of the prospect of a sibling. The response of both are subject to the mother's law. You can't kill or have sex with a baby. So how do girls come to be unviolent or to receive murderous and sexual domestic violence as a defining feature of their being women and commensurately boys to per perpetrate it as a defining feature of their manhood? And this is just one of the questions, but certainly a major one about our social worlds. And the answer, which Juliet offers us, doesn't come from the usual suspects of children and their parents. Instead, it comes from sisters and brothers who later come to stand in for them as partners and enemies in, in the social world or fratriarchy. And so that really is kind of the question, like how does that differentiation happen? And I understand the way that, 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 that you present this as kind of the gender differentiation happens. Um, as you've conceptualized it um, as related to prohibitions that um, correspond with allowances on the horizontal axis. And those are gendered. They're gendered in a binary way for both men and women. For men, the allowance is war, and for women, the allowance is marriage. And of course, we know war and marriage are not universal experiences. Men marry, women fight, and um, you know, we might hope for the abolition of war. Some might also hope for the abolition of marriage. Um, but it kind of raises these kind of questions around particularity and whether there is a relevance to thinking about the particular um, when we also think about the universality of prohibition on the uh, incest and murder. And as an anthropologist, I'm kind of obsessed with it, with this particular. But it does seem, as you said, and, and, and I would say also, to hold that cross-culturally and diachronically that one shouldn't sleep with one's parents and one should not murder um, one's siblings. Um, Oh, and, and yes, but I wonder kind of how the particularity of that exact shape of those prohibitions might have implications for the sorts of arguments um, that are being made and that we kind of grapple with here. So for instance, in places where the prohibition against in incest isn't just don't sleep with your parents and don't sleep with your siblings, it's don't, the rules of exogamy encompass huge swaths of the population. It can be entire clans, tens of thousands of people even. And in other places where well, you can't kill your siblings unless you are um, a man and your sister has shamed your family in, in some grievous way. Um, and, and, and then the, the sort of other aspect of which I was thinking about the particular and the sorts of questions that it might raise is in relation to the, the theorist or the practitioner kind of writing about and generating ideas and then what the theory emerges from. So on the, on the point of the, of the theory, something that I was really struck by in Fratriarchy is, um, and reading the accounts that you have included there, you discuss a, a various different theorists and um, how their theoretical thinking is influenced by their experiences. So you note the originality and the energy of Bynum and Rickman's work as coming out of their survival of World War II. Um, and their ultimate survival of the pain of destroying brotherhood. You also talk about Winnicott's close friends dying on the killing fields of France and the impact that that had, Hotalis's experience of his own brother, 
And you see their experiences, I think, kind of not just personal experiences, but these huge transcendent global events that are manifesting in their theories. Um, and noting that also made me want to ask you to say more about the kind of way in which you see the big experiences, the global as well as the more individual that have shaped you as a theorist um, and as a, as a um, clinician as well. Um, you, know, you wrote this book in the midst of COVID, and I imagine also while you were regularly interacting with your grandchildren, and Freud's own theories were very influenced by his grandchildren and the observation of them, and you were very close to Doris during this time, and also in a time of great upheaval around you. And also just as kind of an aside, that so many toddlers are going to went through the sibling trauma when they have very little contact with the alike others. Right, or with the people who you know, are the social heirs that they might have otherwise been coming into contact with if not for the, the kinds of um, restrictions that were in place on that kind of sociality. So the, the other um, sort of way in which I was thinking about um, particularity is on sort of what's the, what's the basis um, uh, where theory emerges from. And it wasn't something that I kind of had really grappled with at all prior to reading a lot of your work. Um, but where it kind of emerges from, or that question of how do we know what we know, kind of what's the epistemology. And you draw on clinical evidence, you draw on infant observation, um, counter-transference, observation of your practice as well as colleagues and people that you supervise. Also resting contributions from other psychoanalytic work that is relevant to but ignores your questions. Um, on myth, drawing on Shakespeare, Bion and his models, Pontalis and metapsychology, um, and again Freud observing his grandchildren. And what I also wonder though is in doing all of that, is there a tension between those different ways of generating knowledge or kind of thinking about how we know what we know? Um, some of them are quite inductive, others are deductive. Some of them are very situated and particular lived experiences and others are not. And so that, that it sort of raises this tension of the, the universal claims and how we kind of go about knowing um, those universal claims. The universal claims being things like that unconscious thinking is universal, that there are universal prohibitions um, uh, and, and allowances, that the way our psychic, psychic state emanates from universal prematurity um, and dependency. Um, and I'm also kind of thinking of, of the kind of the trouble that some people have in engaging with psychoanalytic thought is the ways in which it appears to be predicated on models of universal heterosexual nuclear family units that are constant over time and space, not to mention kind of individual circumstances. And it seems to me that perhaps in, in fratriarchy and thinking about the, the horizontal axis, that maybe it allows for a different sort of space where it gets away from that in some ways. Um, but, I, but I don't know. And so you know, I want to hear more from you about that. And to the extent that many of these things that we are thinking about are the same across time and space and that um, they are not, or that they are kind of atemporal structures, then where does that leave us in terms of thinking about liberation for all of the sexes? What scope is there for, for hope and where does it lay? Perhaps in fraternity and sister, which is, as you put it before, either a hope or a disaster. And so then, go ahead. 
Thank you very much, Linda. That's great. I promise you nothing else now. No. And it was so close to Nigeria that it might be very interesting if you were to answer those questions rather than us going to move on to something slightly different. I mean, just it, there's so much that probably makes sound. I really think, you know, for us to talk about well, I, and I would only be brief because I think, I mean, I'm speaking as a clinician yeah. and I, I mean, I would trace your work through, I'm happy I'd been in Korea, this sort of communication and conversation maybe 50 years, 1973, when we all read a psychoanalysis of and how important that was for many of us considering training, considering becoming clinicians and how grateful we are to you for that. But I think really... Um, I mean, as a clinician, I can think this morning I was using your work in terms of something I was speaking of to a patient and her grappling with her two young children. But actually, I mean, what I, and so I can take it through my knowledge of your work as being a fan guard and thinking about sexuality along with, um, you know, colleagues at the British Society. But really, um, the, it's such an important book and, and the, the whole notion of this foundational issue of the law of the mother and um, anyone, I mean, you know, you say it's the ordinary world, the ordinary social world that you're writing about, well it's a very complex book I and mean, it's a very challenging very complex book and you look at beyond in a very thoughtful in very, very interesting way around um, the experiencing groups um, you, you, you look at when it goes in the end, when it goes in the end, the, this, uh, of course, incredibly important you know, titans for us around thinking about you know, early development, I mean, in very, very different ways. But you also look at contabilis, and that is just a fascinating um, uh, piece about something that we all think about as clinicians is the issue of the death drive, you know, the issue of um, Freud's notion that death was unrepresentable because it hadn't been experienced before, and in thinking we thought you had that primary, uh, primary repression as well. But and in your book, and looking at that, um, Pontalis is fascinating piece on on his relationship with his brother. What did he call it? Ferocity. The ferociousness. And then most of the fact, one of the things you quote is Richard Tamblay in. Um, um, in, I can't the name of the, uh, the person that cites in the back. You know, we seem to have less of a really violent, but actually, it's toddlers that are really violent. Mm -hmm. And it's either we seem to have a really damn thing So, I mean, you know, and it's fascinating that what you look at with Pontelme is the fact that, of course, before we did know about death, he knew that it's all the fact that his youngest brother died when he was two and of course boys would have had many um, death wishes to all this but then it actually happened yeah he died and then also what Fontalis writes about and what you write about is that Freud is very taken up with death because he himself was ill throughout, throughout most of his adult life very ill and um, so that somehow there is a notion that death is representable and actually it, 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 it makes a very different way of thinking it's a great challenge to much of our thoughts as a psychoanalyst and as clinician. So, um, I don't, I mean, I think that's, I just, uh, there's a gratitude we have to that to you and speaking about things. And the gratitude we have that you bring together such a kind of profound theoretical practice, a profound version of theory along with characters. And, 
And I'll say a very short thing before so we get up to Tamayo as the director of the Bush and just sort of combining. Um, I am a person from the second wave of feminism, um, and that is the most important thing about me. Not only would the time after that, so now, so I still am, I still am. In those wonderful times that we had, um, a second growth feminist, which was, if you have that sort of exciting politics in any time, you don't forget it. It's part of your last stream. And it's a, it's a wonderful, sort of rigidless, insulting bit. Makes, you never feel despairing about feminism. But I think, you know, that's when I have to up at Iran's and childhood, having an honor of them, but the way they were behind you. We're pretty near despair. In fact, I wrote something just for a lecture the other day, which I just said, I can only stand back and thank you for making the world a better place because 22% of women in Tehran now are not where to be. It's you, and here the fact that they are being murdered systematically, executed, it's one of the names of the killers, is pretty long. The 22% is fabulous. They're just, those girls and the young men are just supporting you with fantastic support as well now. Mm. It's just extraordinary. I mean, I have a speechless, as I said, I can just stand in front and making the world feel better. It shouldn't be pushing me sad at the moment. Um, <laughs> I'll answer very quickly to the general point, but you were asking where do these ideas come from? They come from second wave feminism, basically. Yeah. And from, it is second wave feminism, something that mm. I've been at, I was at a certain sort of some people have different experiences of how their feminism went on, whether it declined, whether it increased, whether they, they had in different places. For me, there were two things in second wave feminism which I've still worked with and what I've worked with since then. One is that coming from a very deathly background, um, thinking about how it could change Marxism in a sense, um, gradually not thinking we could change Marxism, but thinking that we had to think about another system, another general system. Uh, is the concept of, of oppression. Now, oppression obviously precedes second-wave feminism. I mean, we can go and do that. There's not this person. There's an animal farm. You know, but you know, but it's about oppression before second-wave feminism. But second-wave feminism actually chose, and that literally, when I did it, it's to bottom, because I knew bottom was in, chose oppression as the, cons the theoretical concepts that we needed to explore on, that we didn't, and that we didn't, he did explore, but was not explored. Um, so that was, that's my theoretical framework, is to work on what do we mean by oppression, and where I am now with that, will be to say, it is very different from class analysis, it's very different from um, and economic facet and ideological analysis, etc., etc. What is it? absolutely crucial for oppression is that all repressed people as opposed to people that are discriminated against or whatever else they may be suffering from is that there is always the possibility of being murdered through yes. that it's about being like the person who kills you up and that's not actually in others is in our position to you so it's the man say maybe because there's another who's actually a dangerous person you say you know this is about the it's about the, it's about the, the, the intimacy of the relationship, um, which is not what cross analysis around. And it's about you, me too. And, and it, it leads then to 
another was that that's a theoretical question that I work with. It's just about oppression. Indeed. And what she stings at that, the material base that she's into that, is another slope from separate uh, feminism, which you probably know much better or much think about matter of often. It resists. Uh, we have to politicize the personal. Mm-hmm. And far too often that's going to I'm sort of personalizing the political. And I think um, what I mean if we mean politicizing the personal. And yes, we've done something, but it's a long way to go. Well, that's the material, that's the task. How do you look at the personal and make that person? It's been excluded from the political world. Mm. So those are my two general answers that I look theoretically to develop, understand its repression. And I look for the material base to feed into that theory to politicising the personal, because it's a very high universe situation. That's the nature of and that's what I've done that in the end. We've been all fitted to a kind of tutorial about people book itself. Yes, well, I am... Um, so I was fortunate enough to be... and uh, to be a student for five years. And um, I feel still a disciple. And so it is uh, as such that uh, I would like to ask to raise uh, two questions. Um, and in fact, there are many questions through the reading of this book, but I picked the first one and the last one. Arbitrary instructions. Um, but before uh, raising these two questions, I, uh, I wanted to um, take a detour, kind of associative detour, uh, because the first thing that um, struck me while uh, reading uh, your book, uh, Patriarchy, was as an experience as a reader to, to feel very joyful. And it's not obvious because the book in itself is not so, you know, it's dealing with quite difficult, very difficult. Uh, and yet I felt really of a, a bit of joy, uh, um, which also happens rarely when you read theory. So, so it's quite And uh, I sort of, uh, um, you know, I think Andy Bergson writes about uh, joy as a cue when you touch the truth. That's we pay, perhaps. Uh, I thought of uh, Gilles Montanis, who speaks of the psychoanalytic concept as a concept that allows you to see more in the clinic, mm-hmm. to see something more of us. In t- and indeed, certainly the horizontal axis allows to see more, not only in the clinic, but also in the social world, in the, and in politics, and many aspects of our work. But more fundamentally, I think that uh, your work on seedings, and this book contributes to alleviate a certain form of repression, uh, of uh, repression in the sense something that has been repressed from the psychoanalytic theory, and which is the sending trauma. And I think the joy comes from that, perhaps, only from you that it contributes to that. Um, and indeed, as, as uh, was mentioned, I think that and it, you, you, it's a footnote in the book, actually, the, that the, the death of um, Freud's brother, Julius, probably explains partly why, although in his self-analysis, in his correspondence with Fliss, he had this memory about his murderous impulses towards his brother. He never elaborated theoretically on it. Probably, yes, the, 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 the fact that he really died made it much more difficult. And I went back to the letter, and probably in the letter, there is 
uh, also the, the famous passage when Freud mentioned that he sees his mother of Nike in the train going to Vienna. As if already had from the very beginning that this complex would uh, hide the civic trauma, would make it less visible, to cover it. Um, and I thought that not only that, but Freud's choice to favor Greek mythology to um, explain the functioning of the Victorian family, to this uh, completely struck of genius, to bring Greek myths to look at the functioning of a middle-class Victorian family, but by doing that, to also put on the shadow the Bible. And I think the Bible, and I'm not at all an expert, uh, but just uh, the book of, from, you know, the book of Genesis is full of uh, murders between siblings. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it opens with the murder of um, Abel by uh, Cain. Uh, and it finishes with uh, Joseph forgiving his brothers, who, his brothers who wanted to kill him and at the end sold him as a slave. Um, and there it, it's also a mystery, uh, by the way, why Joseph forgives him. But, um, and uh, um, I, reading about that, I, I um, noticed that, in fact, um, there is a, a Lacanian French analyst, uh, Gérard Madad, who, I don't, I don't think he forged the term, but he wrote a book called the On the Complex of Canning, so naming that a complex. But I saw that it was very important <coughs> in your work that it is not, the sibling trauma is not a complex, but a trauma. Um, because the complex, <laughs> complex, the Oedipus complex, the complex can be dissolved. I think Freud even writes, it's a German, I mean, but that it, it sinks at some point. Yeah. Um, whereas here you speak of a trauma. Um, and the trauma is how the psychic life of the baby is not equipped, I mean, that the baby is not equipped to face the demand that is made upon him to evolve, to become a toddler, to be moved out of this position as a baby. And he is not equipped to experience like a wound. Um, and I, I, um, it also reminded me, in fact, the work of uh, Pierre Aulani, uh, and that with the concept of the violence of interpretation, something in the way the mother interprets the world becomes too violent at, uh, um, in this uh, passage. Um, and also I think the work of Francis Tastin, the work uh, with the autistic uh, children. But what is very new and very, what really alleviates the repression is that here a new form of otherness appears, which is a sibling. Uh, at, the, at the horizon, when this trauma takes place, when there is this very violent demand of becoming a topper, there is, at the horizon, a form of otherness, which is a sibling. It's, it's a... Uh, uh, attached with this figure of the sibling. And um, then, of course, it is not through, in your work, it is not through the mother expecting language. I mean, it, the, the way this trauma is um, transmitted is the law of the mother, this idea of the, the law of the mother. Uh, and it, here comes my first question, <laughs> which is that, uh, the law, I, I think of the law of the mother as what it, uh, makes possible this horizontal axis, not only as a new perspective, but also as something quite structural, as something that really structures the psyche. And I wonder if, as, you not, as I think you notice actually, that this law of the mother is much harsher 
about murders and incest, that it is primarily uh, a law that prevents murder, a little less so about incest. And I wonder if incest is the right term. And in a way, I wonder if the sexual desire, the sexual life of the baby at this point is not under the umbrella of uh, polymorphous perversity. And is it already a form of incest? And I wondered also if, when the mother is less harsh with uh, sexuality between siblings, it is not so much that she's not disturbed by it, but more that the, it, it comes under the, her own repression of her own infantile sexuality. And so if this law, the if this horizontal axis imposed by the law of the mother is not full of holes, which are holes about infantile sexuality, and, and if somehow it is, you know, to, to think about what is the role of infantile sexuality on this horizontal axis. So that's, you know, I question a bit yeah. uh, about the beginning. And I have also a question about the end, because I think, <laughs> and, and, but then I will be brief, but um, the, the, about the end, it, 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 um, because I thought about um, perhaps, um, it, you know, what to do with this very primitive trauma. Is it, and you, of course, your, your main, I mean, I think one of the main political feminist tests is how the oppression and the murder of women is, in a way, the displacement of this violence against the baby that takes the place of the toddler. Mm -hmm. But can, what can we repair that? Is it, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a naive question, but can, can it be repaired? Or can it be, ju can it, it be just, can it be displaced, in a way? Is there a hope? Is there a... And incidentally, I was... I wonder that if perhaps, and I don't mean to idealize the British society, the British psychological society, but if in a way um, the British society under the law of two mothers, Melanie Klein and Anna Freud, made possible the kind of human dialogue between siblings, which is not murders, but which is a kind of um, uh, <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> and that's progress. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> shouldn't we, in fact, be also opening it to, to the people at the time? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to answer those? Shall we, shall we go straight to the floor? Go to the floor? Sorry? To respond to? Which bit to respond? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which hole we go down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think you're asking for hope and you've got joy, so that in a session of the fabric, you've got joy. I think that's a hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for, for me, at the moment, the whole that I develop is where I say that what the toddler, well, there's so many different answers to this. Um, I think that what's happening there in this toddler child finding this other baby who has effectively taken its identity and that tantrum is a really serious crisis. So this maybe it's, it's not, it's sort of fun. It's not just it, but not, you know, how you have that television or phone around sweets. It's really, really serious. And if you, if you start sort of just mentioning it, mothers come up with so many stories that they hadn't thought about. 
I mean, I got a lovely one the other day. And it would with ashes. It was from a much younger sister, about two brothers of hers. Um, and which then old brother, being a toddler, really didn't want to have a baby and had just gone on. And it goes on. It doesn't depend before it's not killed the baby. He's still got the desire, and he's just been looking after the desire, so to speak. And this, this older, uh, the older brother came back home to answer the parents with a lovely little puppy that they turned by out and had gone out with his brother and managed to swap. The stories that come up, I think they are just wonderful. And almost nobody, I mean, people who say, they were my two best of friends who were there in the beginning, then remember something. They just remember something. You have it, I mean, they do make other best friends, and of course they can, and that's what... That's what's wrong, in a sense, for me with, with Winnicott's thing, which is that you always think to you or he could prepare things. And um, I, I'm not sure you can always. Mm. And therefore, for me at the lower, the interesting aspect of that later hold is this notion of primary repression. Now, um, mm. repression proper, so to speak, happens with the Oedipus complex. That's what with that, and that's what Freud is a the rest of us can't do, except to feed it and actually work with that repression and get that bit of unconsciousness into consciousness and the patient to do what they want for that, so to speak. Um, but primary repression, it is just a sort of almost kind of thought that it's about that much in the frontalis and the angst, it's not a bit so much deserves. Actually, primary repression is that you chuck away what's to stern as far as you possibly can. Mm. And my own personal image of it is it's, it's like having a stone that you throw out as far as you can mm. and it will sink into a pond that will always be there mm. and it will always influence mm. the, next, the next difficulties, whether they're difficulties in our lessons or whether they're further for us. And that's why I'm going to find life in the Oedipus complex later. It's also a foundational, why I thought a foundational pond mm. the trauma. It's in itself, mm. that first trauma has no history to it. There's nothing before it. Mm. Of course, every little baby is being mm. dropped from mm. the milk not coming or whatever. It's all those multiple traumas that really cut us up good on, that's fine about. But it's not any determining one. This one is a determining one that doesn't need you. Mm. So that whatever difficulty you have subsequently, salty from this original trauma, Will, will come up again, and that's why <coughs> some people do think it's a model for, for, for what happens with me which, which then. I just think, okay, so far we thought, well, and if that's a secondary trauma, and that's what it's called for, for complete and we just think primary trauma is just sort of any trauma, any unconsciousness that we have, which we all feel <coughs> unconscious a lot of the time, not, not the sort of unconscious that we feel with psychoanalytically. And I think no, well, there's actually a primary trumpet for before that, which had no draw before it. Is that there's nothing that predates it. Mm-hmm. And the response then for its primary draw is to hurl it away as far as it can. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of other defenses also which are not related to repression. There's denial, there's projection, there's you know, identification, there's all sorts of defenses. Mm-hmm. But that one is this casting out as, as far as it can. And I'm interested in that and developing what is happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can that come back in some way? 
as, as I think it does, it really, really natural, essentially. Yeah, no, no. So that when we look at these SD, for example, what we take, you mistaken. So, is he, is yeah, I'm just glad it's a question, so go on. In the middle. I, I, just, I was just wondering whether uh, there's a force of it. I was just wondering whether the force of this is partly inflected by the fact the child doesn't yet have full recourse to language. Hmm. Um, the language question is very interesting. Um, basically, a toddler talks, but doesn't yet have metaphor. And that's the big transition, which will be quite a bit later, but it becomes aware of metaphor during this period. And that's fantastically interesting. If you actually read books for children from that age onwards, they are full of metaphors. The stories are just stories of metaphors, basically. They're just metaphors. And if you think about that structure of the older child, two-year-old, the toddler, versus the baby, it, it's actually a metaphoric structure that snitching that you've got. So it's, it's been given the sort of conditions to, to think of a metaphor, but just can't get, get it. So it's only, it's talking. So is it, is, it's, it's not the same talking that you do in either thing, which it's why then you have a metaphor. Then, I'm just thinking of the grandchildren. You, you got yes, the two boys. Yeah, you, you told me to cut that part out of men and women juices. You could tell us about that. Very good madness because it was it was so striking. You weren't a grand you weren't a grandmother when man and medusas was had the sorry anyone else. And the future. I'm a nanny, and I've noticed that one of the ways that maybe one of the mechanisms that parents um, use to encourage their older child to accept the new baby is to tell the older child that this baby is a gift for them. And I don't know hearing you speak. I thought I just wondered how that would affect a teen, a, a girl, or older child, um, who's been playing with dollies, their babies, and obsessed with babies as a toddler, and then suddenly it's the parents sort of say, "Look, we've given you the thing that you loved so much. You've got a real baby now," um, and it's always like. And I'm wondering, does that affect the girls? Um, mentality in it, she always feels as though she's manifested this sort of terrifying version of the thing that she <laughs> loves, and whether that could then influence her psyche growing up into adulthood, whether she might be afraid then of manifesting her sort of hopes and dreams. I don't know. Actually, the trouble is, you kind of have to answer really in your cases. Yes. I certainly don't it instances in that um, a lot um, with the nanny coming back for the new baby and, and, the, and the nanny saying to the mother give it to the older child, give it to the toddler and she gives it to the toddler and the toddler dumps it ever more and see you start asking <laughs> and then you find there's actually something else going on from, yeah. from that love that's been enjoined on it basically I think some way you find it, why I call it foundational trauma? I think you find it somewhere 
as we left, in a sense. But did for sure. I was wondering, would it affect a, a girl um, rather than a boy or in a different way because she's been playing with dollies and bottles and the boy hasn't, maybe. But, but both boys and girls uh, from the very uh, young age give you birth to their own babies. Um, and that, that is very, we're talking about Kedis and and thinking that rubbish. I mean, you could, uh, you come to the fact that everybody wants to be able to give a baby. He might be able to give a baby, this will have a sick forest case. Mm-hmm. When reassured his father to hear the end, give a baby, and boom, give on into the baby, give birth to a baby soon. And that actually, I think that's, I have recently thought that that is, in a sense, historically institutionalized social level mm-hmm. by the fact that um, many, many, many societies, the father is regarded as the progenitor. Mm-hmm. The mother is the author that bakes the study, the human. And that's, that's real widespread. And there's a, a book which I had to review um, about the Eastern Highlands of Papua New Guinea. And I went to a call in Guinea. And uh, it comes under Australians and Australian electorate. And it's how Australians ever so often try and show in and the incredible amount of man It's just huge. It's just huge. And every time that Australia goes in, past, through the visit, ah, loving the other thing to, it gets worse. And mothers, it's institutionalised that the brothers are murdered, and the fathers become known as the progenitors. We sort of know that anecdotally in a very sort of humble way, which is that if you, if you see the birth of an inchar, most people will say that baby looks like Stone. Yeah, I mean, they were the set, and, and there's quite a lot of work on that. And actually, yeah, I'd have been there, but yeah. Because somebody looks like his mother, because he's the progenitor and there's the worry. There's actually don't read that. Sorry, sit there. This could be a child. That's what worry. Well, the child is worried, but the mother, I mean, the mother is slightly irrelevant. You and me were in doubt, but again, the fact that a child didn't come out of your body. Yes. Well, you know that it's not. There is extensive about that, actually, on the basis of somatically dying person. Lemon says, I'm not going to go and explore and find my father. I don't know who my father is, but I know my mother is connected. Yeah, I know she is. Yeah. It's a bit disinterested to me to think who my father is. Yeah, that's why people are saying it then, isn't it, Jennifer? Yeah, they're saying it because they're worried. Yeah. Yeah. But it's more commonly how they exist. Sorry, it's just, uh, but I'm, I'm, this is just a free so Then you're saying through my mind that there is this thing about language and. Mm. Obviously, talk. I was thinking of biting. Biting, 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 biting. 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 Yeah, and it's such a huge oral thing. It's both thrown away at its very primitive biting. Um, so I've noticed that, and I've observed the biting. Yeah. And that was a wonderful metaphor. It's biting wonderful. It's absolutely. Rather than biting back, which yeah. when we're older, we bite back on yeah. it. So I was going to bite back this cock as well. I won't say But actually, uh, biting in a drawer is so powerful. Um, yeah. And it's quite, it, it's just fascinating to observe it, really. Mm. Well, well, eating generally is is, is very early and important. Yeah, it's, it's all that. So I was just thinking about association yeah. with yeah. with language and pre language and metaphor. Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, anyway. I, I think we're going back to the, the girl question there. And the, um, I think uh, where the, what you do and find is girls, I mean, more, more generally than just in, in is really different, um, is that, that girls mind more as the baby is a girl. That that's more of a takeover as well in some ways. They mind more as in they don't like it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're prepared to be brothers for because the brute where I said war for brothers, and mm-hmm. you have to be brothers in war. Even your enemies are sometimes called your brothers because you know it's about the truce or something, and you know, it's all that. That's why I think for me, for for feminism, the most important thing is sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, there's a historical book. Freud in Totemetopo says that the lust of a brother for his sister is almost insatiable. And therefore, they have to band together as brothers not to have sex with their sister or, to, uh, or, or any sisters in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think that as well, the sisters died in that. Um, if you have like some one one woman who will create a case against having been raped, is there's always going to be other women that's absolutely to work for the same person. There is no person who's a single rapist or it just doesn't and must happen sometimes. Obviously, but basically, there's usually a history of women behind that one case, and some of those people will say. It happened to me too. Some of them won't want to say so. But if you have sisterhood, then there is a strength in any of your own ability to, to fight. She get the bundles. And God, for the word of I mean, to bring you away from it. You know, is it political? You just said to me too. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I'm going to Wilbert. I said that this is third wave of feminism. Now, I was laughing because. I desperately tried to have a pair of pyjama in France last week, um, when I peed before. And uh, you know, they're not doing it with doctrine when I leave it for various reasons. And I finally found somebody who didn't do it at the wall when it's just been with Don Kisper and I had to take what I'd done, you know, but, you know and she and then and then she she'd suggested me. And I and then I said I said to her, Well and you've heard all about my academic credentials, etc. Now that you've been telling because I'm a very strong feminist. And she stopped with the objection. I said, me too. I'm in French. I deadly credentials. Suddenly, I Me too. You heard it. Now, I think sisterhood, as a generic, is incredibly important. Even though I know it's going to have a about this difficulty, but I think it is difficult for in a book that we do, um, called Who's Afraid of Feminism? and we went up, uh, not trying, there's that book, we've read an introduction, which um, said, this is a pretty problematic, and it were very difficult to be with sisters. But um, I think it's, that's what we have struggled for us. We need to be as far as it does. Either questions? Okay. Right, we're the youngest child. The youngest child always becomes the toddler, remember? 
So the youngest child waits till it's a toddler to have its, its real trauma. Mm -hmm. it, 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 Eda, it's after you. The, young, the youngest one quite often adores the oldest one. If you, if you can um, take it, if you're in a family, so it's sitting like the you know, parents and children and batch friends around, and the, and the baby's brought in, the first person the baby goes to is the toddler. The absolute biggest attracted to. If you put a baby up pram in the street, uh, one of the biggest ones of um, what the toddler is thinking, the love it's a picture of this. This one, a, a little boy, girl is suddenly pushing the pram with a mother pushing the pram, baby in time. And the girl is thinking, when nobody notices, I'm going to send him on eBay. <laughs> 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 but basically, the top, the baby will go for any child in the street. It's, it's so much more exciting. The child's dancing around through all those boring adults, those parents that they all, it loves the dancing, playing child on the toddler. And it waits till it's the toddler before it has the toddler experience on the next baby. Anybody this now? Yeah, very old, very often not the deafest baby. It's always and this baby. It belongs to your friends, brother, or something like that. Everybody always finds. Or fans of fantasy. I mean, there's always fantasy of the baby that didn't have the income. That's always, I mean, sensual and for work, it's circular. Yeah, even so, the only child, very much an only child, is absolutely fantasy. Yes, yeah. I was just speaking to somebody about your work and, and describing some of this, and somebody that, right, and somebody who has an only child who's just started school and also kind of been through COVID, right? And now that this this time with this older child has been on their own, but essentially there are these social errors of the expected sibling that never came, and they're having to make that transition from yes. being a toddler to or, or to being a toddler. Yes, yes. that experiential. Yeah, it is. It's only about four. Yes, when they find the right, I'll have more, you know, traumatic. But the app has to be if we are very good on it. You've written a paper. Yes, that's really good. Actually, noted that that Shakespeare's great tragedies are all only two. Ah, yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I was going to do a book on the Shakespeare, but I hope it's where I don't that. Something like that. Yeah, free music. Very, very stamped. When I was getting that, the other thing I said to you was measure for measure because I know. Yeah, I had his step. I've nothing to the thing. And he says, to our hand of incest, to our relationship, have bind us to them. Oh, we're like, back to getting a tone at you. We went celebrating for actually argue, but let's celebrate urban arms. We'll go. In the proper stream, let's warning you. Back to the book. Any questions? I put it off the base there. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. So. Yeah. But my tears here have set. So the NASA part of it. Yeah, that's what it's like. And then I have the look. Can you decide to do I set the up? Oh, jeez. We do. Me too. Okay, so do I. Sorry. Um, just an observation on the loss of metaphor. Mm. Um, a ticking with those children who may not have had the peer relationships that they had during the lockdown mm. and um, the excess use of technology for those younger children and how possibly the metaphor is felt in the body for those young children 
and the amount of baggage. Especially, I also think this could be a class thing. It could also be, depending on the country that the child has been brought up in and the circumstances of the family and access to language. So the idea of the intergenerational um, patriarchy as the big other, as Lacan would say, and that introduction into metaphor and language are almost being given up to the fratriarchy more than um, the parents and the adults that maybe have, would have been around the extended family in past generations. Um, and as those children become more engrossed in that technology, the the way that they are feeling the world becomes more embodied within their body um, as feeling in the onset that you mentioned as opposed to um, actual words and metaphor and how that will then ma manifest itself in our future generations. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you, really. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't, I've got an association to as we encourage our conclusion. Many years ago, I was in India and I slipped down the mountain and everybody thought I'd be twisted by ankle and they were all massages or anything. And I said, there was something more than that and I was at this broken fat. And I was coming to return from it and I was sitting, uh, a plane didn't come and I was sitting there to a show in an airport and, and Families were gathering around. Uh, a huge lot of Indian families were bits to seeing people off for their own to wait for a long time. And I was very struck by how the baby was handed round above all these people and absolutely fine. But when the mother went out to the middle or whatever she did, the baby screamed. And I had just an association that the, that the son. What you're about saying, in a sense, there's, there's something there that tells us right from the from the beginning of it that will do, you know, and will be different in different cultures. Mm -hmm. And if we had handed that baby around in our culture here, it would have had ten months. Uh, uh, what is it? Ten, ten months old. Um, what was it? Strange anxiety. Strange anxiety. Strange anxiety. Yes, plenty. Yes. Did that any stranger oh, that? That's just depressive. I thought. Yes. Any functions? Yes. Yeah. Either. So I'm sure it's different in different cultures to do the bee, and it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. yeah, in the bee hole. Yeah. And with I just, just what? But it's just a, one question I wanted to bring up, which is just that the, the law of loving of yours, the soldier. My concern had brought was just the separation between those two, and where the two link because there's always the father in the mother's mind or the other in the mother's mind, that that's, that's just that, the, 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 I'm sure it's something to be developed really, but the horizontal access and the vertical access, just, there must be more kind of nuanced ways rather than, you know, with a new foundation, I think it is a new foundation thinking for us as psychoanalysts, but it's, it's, it's must meld in with the law of the father in some way. Well, 
I, my point's always been that this is not replacing. Oh no, I don't know. Absolutely not replacing the Burton and Jordan. You know, no, I was not. The Northamptonologist starts as a as a joke. <laughs> it was so the Canadian friend uh, that said, "Well, actually, I didn't know the mother of funding. He was totally outraged." <laughs> <laughs> and so I then sort of tried it out on people, and everybody, you know, people took it out, didn't take it out. So we be having discussions with people who actually needed the whole horizontal thing and said they'd ignore the rest of it. But when it got from North and Mother, they just mind passed it. Mm. It's very interesting. It was really hard to get people to take your words out that, well, that's made this pretty strong. And to see what, what the problem is. Mm. So I think it is a problem um, in accepting that there is a, a law of the mother, which is different from the law of the father. I accept it. I accept it. It's just amazing. It's just a little short bit of that. The linking thing, which it can be because of pessimism, is to, to, uh, to, uh, to... Yeah, but then it, then it asks, is the law of the mother in the father law of the father? What's that? <laughs> we don't think that way. You see what I mean? We think the only way always. We still always think that way. Right, right, finish and others to you. Red and left, and Isabel, she looks like a mother. Mm. Legal systems have always been perturbed, and we see Mayo in the yeah. wider right out. Everything that they've had it. I was really shocked at one point in listening to how giving birth is male. Mm. I think I don't think giving birth is male. It's a male, it's a male paradigm. Mm. You think that's an indicator school is Nelson. It's extraordinary. It really is extraordinary. And that's part of the life on the oppression. I mean, it's historically, they just discovered uh, that, they're, that they're hemorrhaging black scientists. Huh? Did they not notice? There were no black scientists. They suddenly noticed that the PhDs, black scientists, are not going into the profession because they won't go anywhere. They've only just noticed. Well, we've only just noticed that everywhere is a pair bottle. Unless there are any more questions. All right. Thank you so much to all of our speakers. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Juliet Mitchell. It's been an absolutely riveting discussion from start to finish. Thank you very much indeed.